couple months ago, I got this text message, okay? Uh, and it was out of nowhere. I was in my apartment, I was getting ready for bed, and I was just uh, doing my nightly routine, making sure that uh, my wife makes me do the dishes at night. And I hated it at first, but now going to bed and waking up with clean dishes, it's amazing, all right? Who knew? So I, uh, I was doing my nightly routine, and I got this text message, if you could put it up on the screen. Hello there, we're looking for Karen. Can you please have her call Michelle? Sorry, wrong number. I began to think, oh no, who is this Karen lady and why is she missing? My mind began to think, there is an issue going on and I need to step in and intervene here. Who is Karen? Why is Michelle looking for Karen? And why are they texting me? It was a local number, so I was like, this is, this is a serious situation that I can step into and help out. But I, then I took a step back and realized, you know what, it isn't my job. Uh, it is the wrong number, and I can't just, like, put myself into this situation. And so I responded with, oh, no. Well, now I'm worried about Karen. Hope you find her. <laughs> I was terrified, but I knew that this wasn't my cross to bear. But then I thought, well, maybe it is. Maybe the Lord put this conversation into my pocket for a reason. Maybe that this is something that I need to reach out and, and step into and make sure that everything's going, going right right now. What, what is going on in Karen's life to where she is missing, she is lost, and she can't get a hold of Michelle? What's going on here? Maybe the Lord wants to use me to get to these people, to preach the gospel so they can get saved. These were the thoughts that were going on in my mind, and I began to think, do I need to call the police? Do I need to, do I need to call back? Like, if they're here, do I need to go and help look? Like, what's going on? And then I res she responded with, LOL, we did, thank you. <laughs> oh, man. My, if I, I was wearing my Apple Watch. My heartbeat was pumping. I was like, this is terrifying. The point is, with a silly illustration like that, which is real, those are real screenshots, was, uh, was that I could have taken any text message, taken it out of context, blew it out of proportion, and, and read into situations that, I don't know the backstory. I don't know what's going on in here. And so for me, uh, I was thinking of ways to kind of communicate like what happens when we take amazing passages, uh, specific passages, isolate them, and then read them in a completely different context, how we can blow things out of proportion or, or maybe miss certain things that were supposed to be said. And we begin to, to uh, neglect the, the, doing the work of tilling the ground around a beautiful gem like Jeremiah 29, 11. And so for us, I want to make sure that we look at the broader context of what's going on so that way we can hold on to this beautiful, glorious scripture. Because uh, when we read famous passages like this, we tend to do one of two things. We either embrace it because it is encouraging and motivating, or we dismiss it because a lot of people take it out of context. And neither of those, I think, are helpful and I think are wise for us to do. We have to, we have to see that this is God's word and it's in the Bible for a reason, but we want to make sure that we know what it is that Jeremiah meant when he wrote this letter to the Israelites. And so let's make sure that we are looking in context. So uh, about 600 years before the birth of Christ, the Israelites were suffering through captivity and exile in Babylon. That's what's going on right now. The Israelites, they were in the promised land, and then because of their disobedience, they got allowed for them to be, to be held captive and to be exiled, to be expelled out of their promised land into Babylon. And Pastor Justin talked about last week how cruel the Babylonians were. Like, this was not good 
news. This was terrible. And they were expelled, they were exiled out of the promised land into Babylon. And, and they had undergone that and, and this, uh, because of their disobedience to God. That's what, that's what the scriptures say, that they were taken out because of their disobedience to God. And when we hear that, we might conjure up pictures in our mind of like an angry God in the sky who strikes down people because he doesn't get his way. But that's not the picture of the biblical God that we believe in. That's not who God is. See, Israel was not innocent, yet God was still merciful to them. We hear things like because of their disobedience, God take, took them out of the promised land. And we think, man, how rude is that of God? But God's the one who put them in the promised land to begin with. God is the one who promised them to go into it. God is the good one who gives good gifts to his children. And when his children disobeyed, took them out. We think that Israel had to have been the victim in this situation, but we'd, we'd, we have to remember Israel was not innocent, yet God persisted in his mercy to them. And how true is that of you and I? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are innocent. We're all broken people. And God continues to persist in his mercy for us. We read in 2 Chronicles, talking about this situation, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. See, this was the role that Jeremiah played. He was a prophet of God to the people of God to point them back to God, to call them to repentance, Israel, you are God's people, and you continue to disobey. You continue to spit in God's faith. You can face. You continue to turn your back on God, who has continued to bless you. And how good is it of God that yet while we are still sinners, like turning our backs on God, spitting in God's face, disobeying God, He is good to us still. We have breath in our lungs. We have the joy of life. We're able to just. In, enjoy that common good that he allows for all of us to have. Rain pours down on the just and the unjust, the saved and the unsaved. And so for those of us who are looking at Israel and we're saying, man, God really just put them into captivity? Like that's kind of rude, God. We gotta understand what's actually taking place here, that it's not, God cannot be unjust. If he's unjust, he's no longer God. So we read in Jeremiah 25, I'll get to 28, but in 25, I want to read what is the mission of Jeremiah. He says this in verse 3, for 23 years, for 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you haven't listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. You guys ever try and tell somebody something and they just don't want to listen? Like, you know that they need to hear the wisdom that you have for them and they just don't want anything to do with it. And you are consistently, you're persisting in like, man, I love that person. They need to know. They need to know they're living in sin. They need to know that this thing happened with that. They need to know. And, and we're, we're trying to show them whatever truth that we want them to know that they need to know because we love them and they just want nothing to do with it. And this was 
Israelites in Jeremiah's time. See, the prophets of that day, they didn't like the message of Jeremiah. They preferred the seemingly more hopeful and happy message of men like Hananiah. He was another prophet in that time. There was a bunch of prophets who, who prophesied really encouraging, motivational things, and, and, and the Israelites loved it. They were like, yeah, absolutely, amen, amen. But, but Jeremiah came in with kind of like a, it was a bummer of a message. Like, he was nicknamed like the weeping prophet. Like, this is, this is like sad, sad stuff. But the thing is, is that it was real. The, the other ones, it wasn't real. It was a false hope. And Jeremiah was preaching, although it wasn't exciting, true, real hope. So we, we want to read, okay, well, what is, what is Jeremiah saying? What is Hananiah saying? It says this in Jeremiah 28, verse 1. Hananiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts. I want to pause there for a second because isn't it like <laughs> false prophets to say this is what God says? We see that in the garden. We see that with the serpent wanting to tempt Jesus in the desert. We, we see the devil using truth, using God's word to get people to disobey God. So we read, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. A few things that I notice in here. Uh, Hananiah is putting a time frame on it, two years. Note that in your mind. He's saying in two years something's going to happen. We'll get to that in a minute. The second thing that I notice is that uh, Hananiah is attributing this exile to Nebuchadnezzar, who took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar did this to you. And while that may be true, we, we're going to note in a few verses that what Jeremiah has to say about that. So two years, King Nebuchadnezzar did this to you. All right, so let's look over to Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is his response, Jeremiah, the true prophet's response. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, which is also kind of interesting that this is the way that Jeremiah would speak as a, as a true prophet of what God said. And then all of other false, false prophets take that same thing. They're basically uh, or they're taking what Jeremiah said as a way of uh, authority and reliability and trustworthiness, and, and, they're, ta and they're saying that but God never spoke to the false prophets, so when we see, hear Jeremiah speaking, when he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, we should incline our ears because God's actually speaking to him. So thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, ha whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. This is what God is saying to the Israelites in exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't increase, but seek 
the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Hold up. Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile? This is God saying this. He's telling the Israelites, seek the welfare of the people that have persecuted me. Lord, you're really telling me that you want me to care about the community that I'm in, where I am in exile in? This is, this is what you want me to do? And it seems to be, yeah, that is. And, and God is the one who sent them into exile? It was the Lord who commanded them to go, who worked it out so that they are in exile? That's what Jeremiah is saying, a direct contradiction to the words of Hananiah. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did, I don't know how much more clear he can be. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So, we hear the words of Hananiah, encouraging, motivating. It gives us a time frame. We all, within two years, are gonna be able to get to the place where we want to be, and he's gonna break the yoke around our neck. See, Jeremiah would wear a wooden yoke like that oxen would wear around his neck to symbolize Israel's uh, exile and captivity in Babylon. And, and Hananiah got pretty bold. He walked up to Jeremiah in a face-to-face uh, conversation that they had, they were going toe-to-toe, and he actually broke the wooden yoke off of Jeremiah's neck. Now, Jeremiah had a lot of patience because that man just laid hands on him and broke the neck, and it's like, all right, practicing patience, good for you. And, and he said that, that the Lord is going to break the yoke, the wooden yoke, off of, off of Israel. Jeremiah's response to this is, man, I hope you're right. I hope he comes back in two years. I pray, I really do wish that that is the case. But that's not what's gonna happen because the Lord's gonna replace this wooden yoke with an iron yoke, saying you're not gonna get away that easily. And then Hananiah died later that year because that's what happens when you speak on God's name and uh, when God never actually spoke with you. You might be wondering, what's the, what's the problem with this message that Hananiah is saying? So what's the big deal? If, if Hananiah actually believed that, is actually a, if that's a real thing that God has spoken to Hananiah, two years, two years are going to be set free. The yoke of your back is going to be broken. You will be set free from the pain that you're in. What's, what's the big deal about that? And the big deal is, is that's not what God says. That's not what God says. He's saying things that God never said. And we need to look at what did God say? Not what these people that we hear giving us really hopeful, encouraging things. 
not what they say, what does the word of the Lord say? We have to look at the scriptures and see what are they saying? Because it's reflective of who God is. And when we look at this, when we look at beautiful scriptures like Jeremiah 29, 11, in the context that it is, we know that it wasn't meant for us. It was meant for the Israel's, Israelites in captivity. So should we dismiss it because it's not for us? No, it's still in scripture. It's a word of God. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But we need to know what it's actually saying. What it's saying is that if God was faithful to Israel then, he will be faithful to his church today. He has not started a work that he will not finish. God is faithful. And so we know that if the promises of the Old Testament are all made yes in Christ, then we can hold on to that. And so it's not a, a false hope of God's gonna break the yoke on my back. And there might be people who are telling you that God wants your you to live your best life. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be successful. And that may be the case, but God wants you to be saved. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to repent of your sins and run after, the, run after the goodness of the Lord, to be set free from your bondage. God wants you to know that he is glorious and good no matter what you may face. That's what God wants you to know. That's the hope that we need. And so I want to point out three observations from this scripture that I see. Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's read that one more time. It says this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, your, your version might say, to prosper you and not for evil or to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. The first observation that I see is that it is God with the plan. It's God's plan. Great, anyways. God is the one with the plan. It's not our plan. We're not the ones who are able to write it out. The Lord's the one who ordains our steps. And praise God for that, because I know that if I wrote my own plan, oh my goodness, I would look really cool for like five minutes and then I'd fall apart. I still struggle to take my dog out at 6.30 in the morning when she's crying to go out. It's, it's oh man, how do you guys have puppies and babies and everything? It's crazy. <laughs> Jeez. We don't like that God is the one with the plan. We don't. If we're being honest here, we don't like that because then that means that God can have the veto for our plan. Because we submit our plans to God and say, you like this good, God? You're, you know, stamp it, stamp of approval, we're, we're running. It's the Lord who has the plan and we, and we tend to buck up against that because we think that, that we have our own best interests at heart all the time, right? Like who can care more about me than I care about me? Who can want me to be more successful than I want for myself? Who can love me more than I love me? The answer is God. God cares more about you than you will ever care about yourself because he's seeking after your eternal joy. God cares. And it's like a parent, a good parent, who doesn't let their kids have candy for breakfast and chips for lunch and ice cream for dinner, no matter how much they want to because they, the parent cares more about the child's health than, the, than their immediate satisfaction and gratification. 
And that sucks <laughs> to be the kid who was wanting this so bad. And we feel like, like this is what we need. We need this bowl of ice cream. Amen. We need it. We want it. I love it. It's so good for me. How can this be damp? How can this hurt me, right? How can this hurt me right now? It's not going to spoil my appetite. I'm still going to be hungry. Trust me. My mom would always tell me, AJ, it's going to spoil your appetite. I'm like, I'll eat both and dessert after as well. Like, come on. And we tend to think like we want that thing now. And it's the best thing for us because we know ourselves more than anyone else can, but God knows you, and he has a plan. He has a plan. So the second is this, that prosperity does not mean success. Not in the way we define it. It doesn't. See, let's think about this logically, okay? If God, if A, God cannot lie, okay, Titus 1, 2, B, God promised Israel prosperity. He did. It's, it's in there. There's no way of going around it. God promised Israel prosperity. And C, Israel lived in exile for 70 years. Generations. People lived and died in captivity. If those three things are true with the biblical worldview that we understand, the authority of Scripture, if God cannot lie, if God promised Israel prosperity, and Israel lived in exile for 70 years... Therefore, our conclusion must be that prosperity cannot mean physical, emotional, financial success. It can't. Because if that's what it means, if that's the definition of prosperity, and then when God promised Israel prosperity, he lied to them and didn't fulfill on his promise. If that's what that means, then Israel, God didn't come through with his promise to them. And we know that God cannot lie. Because if he did, then he was a liar, and he is not holy, and he is not God. So then what are we to do? How are we to view this then, if that's what the scriptures say? So the Hebrew word for welfare is shalom. It's often translated as peace. And what that means is an overall holistic peace. It's a completeness. It's, it's a, I care about all of you. So God is not promising Israel a perfect successful life, he's promising peace in the midst of that life. He's promising them that I'm going to take care of all of you now and forever. He's promising them that I am looking after your eternal joy. We don't see the Israelites having that immediate success in their endeavors. The disciples were some of the closest people to Jesus with great faith. And, and, we, and yet we see their lives being marked by suffering, not success, in the way that we would want to define success. The way that their lives are marked by success is that they knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. They proclaimed the gospel. They saw lost people saved. Their ministries moved all around the world so that us Americans in 2021 can be saved. That's a successful life. So we, the third point that I see is that there is a greater hope. We have a greater hope. See, the Bible doesn't, the Bible promises us even greater hope in future than just being healthy and wealthy and happy. It's a greater hope that we have. So should we, I just wanna pause and, and 
and talk about this. Should we feel bad for being healthy? No, not, not at all. Should we feel bad that we are comfortable in our finances? In fact, we might have some overflow. No, no, not at all. Should we feel bad that our businesses are booming? No, not at all. That is, that is not the point of this. The point is that those things, as good as they might be, because they're gifts from God, they are, they are not things that should be strived after more than any other thing. They should not be things that are strived after more than a relationship with the Lord. Those things shouldn't be strived after for this, or at the, at the sake of crushing other people beneath you. Not only that, but those things are not evidences of God's favor on your life. And conversely, the lack of those things isn't proof of God's absence in your life. If I'm healthy or if I'm sick, the Lord is still good. If I'm rich or if I'm poor, God is still there. If my business fails or my business flourishes, the Lord is still good. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. If, if that is the way that we see Jeremiah 29, 11, as God being the one with the plan and prosperity not meaning success by the world's definition and by it giving us a greater hope. See, don't you want a greater hope? Don't you want a greater hope than the one that the world is trying to sell you? Don't you want to know that whether your business is a success or not, God is still good to you? That no matter what you may face, whether the diagnosis comes back positive or not, God is still present in your life? and still has a plan for you through sickness and in health, whether you live or die, Christ is still good and will be glorified in it. Don't you wanna know that? See, if you know him, then you know hope. Because we cannot obtain the hope that our souls crave, that we know that we need apart from the work of Christ. We can't do it because it's in Christ alone that we receive the promises of God. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then graciously give us all things? There is a hope that we have. So does God promise us a prosperous future? Yes, he does. We have to make sure that our definition of prosperity is a biblical one because there are far too many preachers and pastors that are trying to tell you that God's will for your life is to always bless your business and to always bless your health and to always make you happy. And church, that is not so. The disciples, the early church, the Israelites, their lives were marked with pain and suffering for God's glory and for their good. And so when we begin to view Jeremiah 29, 11 as a passage of hope to a suffering people, then we can hold onto it and proclaim it as good news. It's hope to a suffering people 
to exiles that are out of their land, to people who are here on earth right now who are going through the motions and we feel like we have, a, we have heaven that is our home and we're just passing by, but right now while we're here on earth, life sucks. I'm losing family members left and right. I haven't experienced joy in years. There is a greater hope and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And I wanna share with you guys uh, a quote from uh, John Piper, it's his response of the implications of the prosperity gospel. He says this, when was the last time anyone ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, did Jesus give you that? Because I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. It's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above the giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is no, uh, there's nothing that I desire besides you. And my flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. Not of, as God, not of giver of cars and success and happiness as God, through anything, he is still God. Amen. See, I'm not saying this to dig or to disturb you or to talk about something that is dramatic. I'm saying this because it is real. Terrible, disastrous things happen. And if we are not prepared to view those things as a way, as, a, as an opportunity to praise him through it, then we're gonna look at those things as evidences of God's absence from our life. And that's not the case. If we look at Jeremiah 29 as a promise of hope through suffering, then we understand that every less than satisfactory, less than satisfactory situation we find ourselves in is an opportunity for us to worship in the midst of whatever worry, to praise him through every pain that we might endure, to trust in him through all of the tragedies and trials and tribulations, to lean on him through whatever loss we may have, to obey him through all of the obstacles of life. And so let's tuck this verse into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, eight through 10, it says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our own bodies. This is Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if we have been crucified with Christ, then we rise up with Christ. And in Christ, we have treasures stored up in heaven forevermore. So church, 
what shall our response be to this beautiful passage in Jeremiah 29, 11? It's that God has a plan to prosper you and that doesn't end here on earth. That does not. Because what's the point of being happy for 80 years if we're gonna be in hell for the rest of eternity? What's the point? Unless the point is that we experience eternal joy here on earth now that will step into an eternity of eternal joy in heaven with the Lord. And while we are exiles here on earth, while we are here sojourning through the time that we have, whatever the lot we might have, to build houses, to plant gardens, to have jobs and be good at those jobs, to get married and have children, to stay here because we're gonna be here for a while and to seek after the welfare of the place that God has planted us. And all the while recognizing that God is the greatest gift that we can ever receive. Christ's sacrifice for us, that is the best thing that we have. And if you don't, the Lord wants you to have it. That is the greatest thing that we should strive after, relationship with the Lord. Do you know him? Do you have that hope? Do you have the hope that no matter what happens, you know that there is a God who is with you, that gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding? I don't know how to explain it, but right now, though I'm facing the worst tragedy in the world, I still know that my God is with me and he is for me and he has not forsaken me. Because if you don't have that, you can. Ask any Christian. That is not just a lofty idea or this fake concept or this theoretical belief that it might one day happen. Ask Christians of their testimony of trials that they went through, that though I lost my spouse or my child or I got this or my business failed or whatever may have happened, they were able to endure because of the hope that we have in Christ. And Christians, hold on to that hope. Hold on to that hope, lest we go through suffering and we don't have a hope. We ha- we, we're hopeless. We don't, we don't have anything tangible to be able to press on and endure. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are a God who is with us, that you are present in our lives through the large and the small, that there is not a day that goes by where you are not actively thinking about us and pursuing our eternal joy. And what the enemy meant for evil, Lord, you meant for good, so that we might know you as good and as God and as glorious. So help us, Lord. Help us believe those truths about you. Help us know them and love them and reflect them in all of our lives. And help us cling to verses like 29, Jeremiah 29, 11, as a message of hope to a suffering people, true hope. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in your name.